invite you to turn in your Bibles as we've given this unique and wonderful privilege at any time to open the Word of God and hear from the Lord from the Scriptures with regard to the things that are uh, inspired. The Word of God is eternal. The Word is, of God is authoritative. It is immutable. It is infallible. And so we're grateful, Lord, for the eternality and the not only that, but the transformational power of the Word of God by the Holy Spirit to transform lives, souls, as you are about the business of restoring the image of God, the likeness of God in those who belong to uh, you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be with us now at this time as we look at these things through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you'll look at chapter 6, we're looking at uh, the remaining discourse, the discourse of Jesus Christ referred to as the bread of life. This is part two. Last week was pretty much introductory. This week, we want to unpack, well, as far as we can get. Some portions of scripture lend themselves to more of a formal, common, more recognizable homiletical outline, not in this case. As I, I read through this discourse over and over from verse 35 to 59, which is, comprises the discourse of Jesus Christ on the bread of life, as it's commonly known, there are things that are repetitive. He repeats them over and over again. Perhaps that's where John gets it, because in John's first epistle, you see him repeating things. John isn't linear in how he writes. John is kind of loops around and loops back around and he repeats himself on things. But that that is somewhat like sowing, isn't it? I mean, it's really sowing the word of God in. There's a, a point to, a very important point to repetition. And there's things clearly that he's repeating here. And it, and it comes up off the page if you read through it enough and you look carefully at it to see what Christ is actually saying. And so what I've found, at least in, in my work on this this week, is there are no less than five major themes that Jesus Christ is covering. So we're going to look at these verses that repeat these themes. They're repeated in several of the verses. So we're not going to go through verse by verse, chronologically and sequentially like we typically do. So just to give you a heads up, we're going to be looking at these themes within this discourse and seeing the repeated uh, nature of how he's expressing particular major themes. But I want to start, first of all, by setting the stage for us. I think the stage needs to be set when we recognized what happened to us in the fall. What exactly has happened to us? Well, important to this particular discourse, we need to realize that what we've been born with in our depraved state, in our sin-fallen state, are hearts that are hungry. Hungry hearts and yearning empty souls is what we were born with. And we begin immediately to look for ways to satiate a hungry, craving heart to fill what is essentially an empty soul. We're born that way. Now, even as Christians, once they've come to know Jesus Christ and experience salvation, wonderful moment, event that that is to be justified, to be forgiven forever, 
This doesn't go away, not at least in this lifetime. We continue to have hearts that in the flesh keep desiring, keep craving, souls that yearn to be fulfilled. Those will continue. That's exactly what the bread of life is meant to satiate, to fulfill the empty soul, to animate it, to give life to that which is dead. That's the purpose of it. And we'll see that, Lord willing, as we go along. So the human soul, you could say naturally, because it's because we're born in sin, is, is naturally longing and searching. It does that. It's always looking, always searching. But the problem is, before you're saved, you're looking essentially among a, a, a sea of dead and blind, sin-fallen humanity to fulfill it leading to empty lives, of course, never, never completely satisfied and wondering why. But for us, we need to understand that actually that can happen to somebody who professes Christ if they're not careful, because these are things that he fulfills. So the human soul in its stillborn state is barren because of the ravages of sin. Sins have not only ravaged our lives, but prior to us, our first, from our first parents forward, it has carved out, it has gutted the life of God from the soul of man. Resonance still within him is his ability. Some abilities have not been lost. His ability to reason to a certain degree is still there. His, if he's willing to use it for ways to find the one who created him that he might be reconciled. But no, we look among the created fallen creatures to be fulfilled. And, and that's common. We, we experience that. So Jesus is the bread of life. He brings the spiritual dead heart of man to life in regeneration, as you know. The Holy Spirit regenerates all those that Lord has, the Lord has graciously called by way of his Elected glory, those that he's chosen to restore, those whose souls, whose image he cares to re, 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 recapture because they belong to him. And so that's what we experience. But this in particular is what he's addressing in this, in this passage, and we'll read through that here in just a moment. So for Christ, being the bread of life, he clearly nourishes the empty soul. He he fulfills the craving of the hungry heart. He's the only one that can. He's the only one we can. He's the sole source, if you will. S-O-L-E. He's the sole source of that satisfaction. And he is not only the sole source of all life. There is nothing that's animated, nothing from a blade of grass to a human being that has any life apart from him. Because he is life. He literally is life. And so he sustains life as well, as we learn from the opening of the book to the Hebrews. So Jesus, we could say, is the soul's satisfaction. Now, let's read this. We'll pray, and then I have a few more opening things to say, and we'll proceed from here to look at what these five major themes are and see how far we get today. So we're going to read John 
chapter 6, verse 35 through 59, so that you can hear the discourse in its entirety. And then while we read, since I've prefaced this with this opening, you should be able to see these themes that are clumped together. Even though the verses are separate, the themes will, will clump together. Let's read together. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast away, I never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it And not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and die in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Father, we thank you for your word. So much here, O Lord, as always, so weighty, so pertinent to our lives, so important for us to read, meditate on, embrace and believe. Trust that these are the very words of the living God. Trust that it is you 
who makes them real. You lend the veracity to your word, O Lord. They are true because you are true. Every word breathed out by God is not only inspired, it is truth itself. And so, Lord, we need your help. We are but fallen human beings saved by the grace of God because of Christ. These words are important because you appointed them to be eternal. You've given them to us this day. You've put them in our laps in a book. You're speaking to us even now. Help us understand the import of these words. Help us to understand why you've given them to us today, even now, and be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. So Jesus is the soul's satisfaction. As I mentioned, the soul remains restless until, as you've heard before, it finds its rest in him. He is our rest. Come unto me, all you labor. We even heard that verse cited this morning from Matthew 11, 28 and 29. And I will give you what? Rest. So we won't find that until, unless and until we believe that, come to him and rest entirely in him, having our confidence uh, exclusively in him. But the soul be in its restless state is searching for something or someone that can fulfill it. And that's where we run into trouble. But only he can satisfy the yearning soul. Only he's going to be able to do that. Looking at a number of scriptures in this regard that not only speak to the emptiness of the human soul, but the craving of the human heart. I've come across so many passages that we won't possibly have time for, but this is a repeated idea throughout scripture. And the reason I emphasize this on the introduction is because this is the very point of the theme. He came that you might have life. He came so that you might literally feed off of him and be satiated, be full. So we need to see that. He satisfies the yearning soul of the souls that have been awakened, the hearts that have been awakened by him, as I mentioned, through regeneration. We can't do that on our own. This sin-darkened earth is filled with empty souls that yearn, hungry hearts that are looking for relief from cravings, longing to be filled. Physical bread is necessary, or we would die if we didn't have, in other words, it represents food. To the ancient Hebrews, that was the main staple, so the mention of bread is saying all of the food, all of the nourishment I need. So we need food, physical food, to be able to survive. It nourishes us. We grow by it. We remain healthy by it, depending on what choose, food we choose to, to consume. But so it is with Christ. We must have Christ every day. Every day. So think of it that way. As you think of your own physical hunger, and you would, you would not forget, just, I mean, randomly neglect to eat anything in a given day, would you? No, you'd, you'd start to be, what? Hungry. And, and that hungry is, it comports with what the physical body needs. It's going to let you know that it's hungry. So the thing that doesn't make any sense is when the soul is craving, the, the, the soul is hungry, the heart is craving, it's craving spiritual things. 
when we're talking about the spiritual heart and the soul of man. And yet we go through life looking for that to be satiated in the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The things that he's created that all have one thing in common from that same blade of grass to the human soul, and that is it's all fallen. We rummage around like the blind, seeking to be satisfied by fallen things, activities, people. And we wonder why we struggle. We wonder why life is so hard. We need Him every day, literally, for nourishment. The song, brother, that came over and over in my mind is, uh, and I forgot to tell you, is I need thee every hour. I need thee every hour, O blessed Lord. And that song would go over and over in my mind. Shame on me for, I, I didn't think of it when I saw Charles, but th this, is, this is the point, though. I, I don't understand what happens to us. When we, when we wrap our hearts around humans or we wrap our hearts around our job or, or we wrap our hearts around activities or recreations or sports or whatever it might be, that's what our craving heart, our searching soul does. It's searching like the blind, even though it's within a man with sight, a, a man with a proper sense of what he actually needs. He needs Christ in him alone. As Job said, more than my necessary food, referring to his physical food, I need you, O Lord, more than what's necessary for my body to sustain physical life. We need his righteousness. We need his mercy. We need his grace. We need his comfort. We need his guidance. We need his perspective. We need his mind, which has been given to us, and then we neglect it. Illuminated by that Holy Spirit resident in those of us who have reconciled with God, and I hope that's everyone, or you're twice dead and blind, if not. And today may be the day you reckon with that. But for Christians, we are without excuse. We need all of these things all the time. Every day. When don't you need forgiveness? You were sin-free yesterday? Were you? Anybody want to say this? This is nodding. This means yes. This is shaking your head. This is not shaking your head. This is shaking your head. That means no. So I'd correct that. Right. Every moment of every day, I need him. Yes, I am grateful for the things that I just listed, the forgiveness, the mercy, the grace, the comfort, the guidance, all the rest of it. But I want him. I want him. I want my soul to cling to him instead of anything, anything in this trash heap of fallen. We, we had a wonderful first hour. If you weren't able to be here, I, I feel bad. Talk to our teacher. He'll be glad to share with you the lesson that we had. Part of getting you ready for heaven is detaching you from this place. 
It's untangling your heart from what it, it, it grew around, like a vine that would eventually strangle you, that would eventually serve as the tether that holds you to a fallen place. When you have a place of grandness and glory, the majesty of Christ and purity and holiness and goodness in its pure form, absence of any hint of sin at all. And this first hour, I mean, you talk about setting the stage for, for the message the Lord would bring He worked this morning already, didn't he? Amazing how he does that. We're so grateful for that, brother. So grateful. And we exhaust ourselves. Like I said, I think I said last week, I mentioned in in Genesis 19 where they were going after the angels who came to visit Lot. And, And Lot's and, and it, they ended up striking them all blind. And they still struck blind. The text says, wearied themselves to find the door. That can be our hearts sometimes. It's like that poor fellow, that homeless fellow, whose arm has long since turned black, still trying to find, perk up a vein so he could stick the needle in. How long are we going to do that? God help us through other people, activities, things, and we drain them. We drain them. Why? Why are they drained? Why are we wearing them out? Because they weren't meant to give you the things that only Christ can. Only Christ. But that's us. We want peace. Oh, we want peace. And so the expectation is my circumstances better bring peace or the, the, the family member better bring peace or, or, or this issue I have with my neighbor. He is our peace. He is our peace who's broken down every wall. He is our peace. Cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. He can say so Sweetly, so profoundly, so righteously, and so truthfully. And we pass it by and say, excuse me, I've wrapped my heart around this. I'll give you over to it. If that's, if that's what you want, I'll give you over to it. And life starts getting hard. And they don't know why. And when he gives people over to these things, they get blind more and more blind the further they get from the true source of the soul's satisfaction. I don't know why this isn't working out. I don't know why this person isn't doing this or that for me. I don't know why I can't make this happen. This should have happened. After all, it's just right and good in my assessment. What do we not understand about the cravings of the human heart and the soul's exclusive satisfaction in Jesus Christ? We would say that. I bet we could press it upon the entire congregation. Jesus Christ is the soul's satisfaction. Oh, amen. And then we go back to our lives. And we see where our heart is really invested. 
and it's it's grievous. J.C. Ryle said, A day will come when flesh and heart shall fail, and the world can help us no more. He gave us a clock. He gave us He gave us something called time. He created that. That's not his environment. It's a created thing, and he puts you in it. Nothing static. We ignore that, too. We pretend we've got all kinds of time. That's exactly the song, the siren song of Satan. You got plenty of time. Don't worry about it. Chill out. No, you don't. Ask anybody who's north of 60 or 70 years old. It's a brief, as brief as the scripture says it is. It is so brief. Happy shall we be, he says in that day, if the spirit witnesses with our spirit that we have really come to Christ. End quote. I want you to look or at least listen to a portion of Psalm 63. Friends, we could work this psalm, but we don't have... Thank you. We don't have time. But I'm going to do my best. Here we go. Psalm 63, 1-8, I think really illuminates the principles we're talking about here. Look at it carefully. <laughs> line by line, word by word, clause by clause, word by word. Look at it. God, you are my God. You're my God. Note the possession. You're my God. He could have said, God, you are God. And we would have moved right on past. You're my God. You're my God. I have no other God. All else would fail me. So you are my God. It's almost like he's writing to himself, earnestly I seek you. Why? Because that's what it takes. Otherwise, I'm going to wrap my heart around everything else here on this fallen planet. My soul, he recognizes, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. All it took was casting his gaze in the right place. That's all. Lord, I'm looking to you. And he saw, he beheld the power and the glory of God. Verse 3, because your steadfast love your steadfast love, a love that never fails. Why is that important? Because human loves what? Fail. Even if that husband or that son or daughter just loves you as the day is long, well, one day they'll die. Just to put it pointedly. Then what will you do? Even if you had everything you ever wanted and the son or daughter or husband or wife what will you do when they die? It's by grace that God lets a spouse or a child live when someone that belongs to him, that his son came and died for, wrapped their heart around. What would you do? You are mine, 
the Lord says. You're mine. It's, it's, he's a, is he not a jealous God? Am I wrong here? He is a jealous God. It's a matter of possession. He's come back. He's come back to reclaim what's his. This belongs to him. Your steadfast love, this love that is never fails, that's ongoing, it's eternal, is better than life. It's better than my own life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. That's what they did. Until the Reformation came along. <laughs> oh, Lord, I, I love you. Keep those hands at the side. Don't let anybody. Or maybe you'll do this. But don't move them. Okay? This is pathetic. <laughs> Raise them up. Raise them up. Praise the Lord for who he is. For what he's given us. He's given us life everlasting. He's given us forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, future. He's coming for us to take us to that place that he's so graciously described for us, to be with him. We're looking at those verses this morning. It's glorious. I will go, but I'm going to do what? To prepare a place for you. Why? So that where I am, you may be also. Is that not love? Is that not possession? And I'm coming for you. I implore you, detach your heart from the things that have replaced him. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied. As with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, I want you to stop there for, for a moment just so that you realize the way he started this in verse 1 when he says, earnestly I seek you. It has the idea, the language has the idea of early in the morning. So how, how often does he need him in his day? He needs him early in the morning. Your first waking thoughts, cast them on his, see him and see how much anxiety you end up with. Cast them on him and don't let go. Grab a hold of him like a bear trap and don't let go. Just like Jacob. Not to you, bless me. You're going to have to touch both my hips to get me to let go. Same with your ending thoughts at the end of the day when your head hits the pillow. It's not just about you and I getting some sleep, which some nights that would be great. <laughs> it's about thinking about him at the end of your day and all times in between. You belong to him. What have you found in him? What do you rely on in him? You'll know you've crossed a line and wrapped your heart around something in creation too much when your life is a misery. It's an agony. It's a frustration. It's an emptiness. 
You're, you're listening to the psalmist and you're res- it's resonating with you when he's saying, where are you, Lord? How long, O oh Lord? And he's saying, let go. You belong to me and me alone. Let go. Or you know what you'll do? You'll drown. You've grabbed a hold of an anchor, not a life preserver. You're going down. It's all emptiness, isn't it? It's a darkness there. It's horrifying at times. It's scary. It's meant to be. Because he wants to get your attention. You belong to me. I remember you. Remember how the importance of the memory. That's right. We have to purposefully remember all of the great and wonderful things God's done for us. We have to remind ourselves of his character, who he is, what he's done, what he's promised to do. All of these wonderful, put them on a card if you need to. Put them on your nightstand. Wake up with them. Go to sleep with them and just remind yourself. Make a few of those cards so you can shuffle them around. There's a whole lot in here to remind ourselves of so that our sleep can be sweet, yeah? I meditate on you in the watches of the night. Verse 7, for you... You have been my help. Why in the world did I think I was going to get the kind of spiritual, psychological, emotional help from a human being that's fallen just like me? I put too much weight on them. So much weight that now I'm getting tired of carrying them and I'm starting to drown. But my yoke is easy. My burden is light, saith Jesus. Right? That's the point. Let go. Let go. You have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I shall sing for joy. A joy that you've planted so deeply in my heart. It's not predicated on. It's not dependent on my circumstances. Lord forbid somebody that I do love would die, but you do sometimes take loved ones away. Yeah, we've all had some loved ones that he's taken away. And what was Job's assessment in that situation? The Lord lives and the Lord takes away. What does he do? Curse the Lord then like his wife advises him to do? No, he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. I thank you for that time that I've had with him. Who can say that when I've wrapped my heart around whoever this loved one is or whoever whatever this whatever it is who can say that no we're tempted to curse him we may not call it that and we definitely won't verbalize it so somebody might hear but in our hearts we're like that gardener that Spurgeon talked about who tends the prize roses of his master in the on the estate The master goes away for a long period of time. Comes back, strolls past, and this gardener had wrapped his heart around this garden and he had one rose in particular, his prize rose. And the master walks by and he goes and he plucks it up. That's like David taking 
the, the one precious lamb the man had, isn't it? You plucked up my choice rose. No, those are mine. I only have one. I got one lamb. One. Don't take her. Don't take him away. My beloved son, check your heart because they belong to me. Oh, to be Job like in that hour. Verse, verse 8, here it is. My soul clings to you. That Hebrew word has the idea of, of a, a strong bonding agent, a, a glue, a powerful, powerful glue. Why does it have to be put in such powerful terms? Because there are so many things pulling at your heart. You'd better cling to him and don't let go. Because these things are transient. There's nothing static, as I try to remind myself over and over. They come and they go. He puts us, don't we get it? He puts us in that context to see what? It's a test. What's he trying to find out from us? Who do you love supremely? Gee, that sounds like a powerful lover. He is. You don't know how powerful. I'm going to test you. I'm going to test you and see who you love. So why do we act like it's a strange thing? As Peter addresses, 1 Peter 4.12, why do you act like it's a strange thing when these trials, these things come into your life as though something strange is happening? This is what he does. I am preparing a place for you while you're digging deeper roots here and wrapping yourself, your, the vines of your heart around things here. And I don't want you to be disappointed. I don't want you to be broken. Goodness, I was surprised at how, much, how painful it was when we lost our dogs. And I had to check my heart before the Lord. I'm like, okay, am I crossing a line here? <laughs> Regarding verse 5, where he says, my soul will be satisfied. Spurgeon said there is in the love of God a richness, a sumptuousness, a fullness of soul-filling joy comparable to the richest food with which the body can be nourished, end quote. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, verse 8, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. By the way, when the Scripture is talking about that, it doesn't say, and these things. It never does. Why? Because the Scriptures, as indeed our whole lives, are about who? Him, not me. Not, not the things that he's already declared are fallen. They're perishing. That's the introduction. Now let's get to the five themes in this bread of life discourse. And all 27 of these verses, when you group them together according to these themes, speak of these five main themes, the five major themes in the bread of life. I'll give them to you as a list. 
and we'll do as much as we can today and pick up next week. Here's the five. There's a group within this discourse that speaks to the pre-existence of God in Christ. The pre-existence of God in Christ. Second, we're going to look at a group of texts from this discourse that speak to the provision of God in Christ. His promise to provide for you. God's promise to provide for you in Christ. Third, the providence of God in Christ. This is, he's sovereign, right? He is sovereign. So he provides for us his time, his way. The providence of God for the power of God in Christ. We're going to see that as we've been seeing it all along in John's gospel, just the amazing power of God in Jesus Christ. And five, the perpetual life of the believer in Christ. The perpetual life of the believer in Christ. So let's give this a go and see how far we get. The first major theme from this discourse is the pre-existence of God in Christ. And we see that repeated over and over again, just like the rest of the themes. He either says, comes down from heaven, referring to himself, or came down from heaven in all seven of these verses that you see listed there. Verse 32, now hear them. I've got them clumped together for you. Just listen to this while you have them listed up there for you. Verse 32, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 50, this is the bread that came down from heaven. 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Isn't it interesting when you put them all together? Like you're saying that seven times in 27 verses? That's a lot. Oh, I get it. The point is that this is important. Yeah. It's important. (laughs) Chapter 1, verse 1 of our gospel, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He started out that way. And Jesus is simply nailing that down. He gets people, not just the Jews of his day and the Gentiles, but us as well, by making it absolute. Hasn't he made it abundantly clear that he is the Son of God, the preexistent one, the one who has existed through all eternity past? He is God, very God. He is El Olam, the God who is everlasting, God, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. An uncreated being, however you want to put that, but this is very clear. I came from heaven, I came from heaven, I came from heaven, I came down from heaven, I came down from heaven. Moses fed you, you brought Moses up again, and the manna in the wilderness... Moses died. He didn't even get to the promised land. 
I came down from heaven. And by the way, as we'll see as we go along, we've read it already. I am the bread of life. That's what offended them. I am. The ego am I. You are saying that you are God, sir. Yes. Now you're getting it. I came down from heaven. We'll see why. Right? The providence of a sovereign God. Because of the will of him who sent me. Fantastic. John 3.13, no one had, remember when he said this, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So he who descended from heaven is obviously the Son of God. And then he says, you know who the Son of God is? The Son of Man, Jesus the Christ, the Nazarene. Wow. That's me. He's saying, You remember Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth who? His Son, the Son of God. 1 John and John's first epistle, 1 John 4, 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. We know it. We saw Him. We can testify All the miracles testify. All the healings testify. We saw them with our own eyes. Many of those people still alive, perhaps. Thousands upon thousands saw all of these miracles happen. And with the feeding of the 20,000, they were not only eyewitnesses, they were participants. So this is clear. John's making that clear. And in the Lord's beautiful High priestly prayer, John 17, verse 5. He says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. Or 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 1.20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, in other words, able for us to see him, touch him, hear him, made manifest in these last times. There was a, just like Galatians 4.4 4 says, in the fullness of time. That means, what does that mean? In the, in the fullness of the plan of a sovereign God, providentially, he came precisely when he was supposed to, supposed to come. He showed up as a man for your sake, he says. He's the preexistence of God in Christ. Second, the provision of God in Christ. This will take a little bit more time, probably end up running out the clock. There's two forms of provision that I want to make sure we understand here um, in the verses that are grouped together because they're making this clear. These are the bread of life verses that have to do with his provision for our salvation and his provision for our satisfaction. He's also the provision for our sanctification. If you wanted to have three that begin with S so that you can preach it, that would be acceptable. We're not going to go there. We're going to look at his, the provision, so that we would be satisfied, fully satisfied. The point being made stressed in the introduction here this morning. 
all of these verses that you say either say believe or believes or I am the bread of life or the bread of life repeated over and over. Verse 33, the bread of life is he who came down from heaven. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread. Over and over he's repeating this. has to do with believing for our salvation. It has to do with the bread of life. That is the provision for our satisfaction. Your soul, your heart will not stop craving until it finds its satisfaction in him. But it's interesting in verse 40 where he says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Does that remind you? Of an Old Testament story? It should. Yeah. Numbers, right? Yeah. So Numbers 21, you remember, we look to him and live. When the people of God were grumbling and complaining and upset, dissatisfied, malcontents, he sends in, they're disobedient, they're grumblers, and he sends in the fiery serpents and they start getting bit. And they start dying. A lot of them died. And when they realize that, verse 7 of Numbers 21, we'll just look at 7 to 9, and the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. That's the grumblers. That's the malcontents. Always upset. Not having the things that they think they need, that they want, regardless of what they find in Christ. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. I'm tired of getting stung. I'm tired of dying. So Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who was bitten, when he sees it, shall live. That's a prelude to, for Jesus, obviously, that when he would be raised on the cross, you look upon him and live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What does that also indicate? They believed him. They trusted him. That's what they weren't doing before. We say we trust him then why do we grumble? Why do we complain? Why are we upset? Because when we do that, the reason that's such a serious sin, and it is, read the Pentateuch. Because you're saying to God, to the Almighty God, the provider of everything that you could ever need to be fully satisfied and fully saved, 
Remember, this is salvation and satisfaction he provides for. You're looking at him and saying, it is not enough. I'll tell you what will satisfy me. I'll tell you. And you listen to me. Wow. Can we be that brazen? Oh, yeah. Oh. J.C. Ryle said, let the true Christian feed on the truths contained in this passage and thank God for them. Christ is for every man who is willing to believe on him. And Christ is the eternal possession of all who so believe, end quote. We belong to someone. We don't have the prerogative or the right to tell him what will satisfy us or the circumstances, how they should work out. In our humble opinion. Yeah. Psalm seventy-three, twenty-five to 26. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I mean, we need to go through the Psalms, don't we? There it is. I don't have anything on this planet that satisfies me, that fulfills the desire and the hunger that you do. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I don't need anything else. Matter of fact, it isn't even attractive to me anymore. All the bright, shiny objects, all of the merriments and amusements and all of that stuff, I have no desire for it. Because as my desire for him, who is the only satisfaction of my heart, as he is fulfilling that, as I seek him, the rest of the desires fade away. I don't even think about the things that I used to think about. I don't strive after the things I used to strive after. Thank God. Praise the Lord. I am eternally grateful for that. So not only will all those who come to Christ and believe in Him, possess eternal life, they will possess Him. They will possess Him and thereby have an unhindered access to every resource they could ever want or need to satisfy their hungry soul. Jeremiah thirty-one fourteen. I love this verse. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance. Peter writes of the priesthood of all believers. So who are the priests now? You and I, who know Christ. They fought hard for that concept in the Reformation. Some people maybe even lost their lives over it. So the Lord saying through Jeremiah, I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Your goodness no, I was telling you what I really need here. Be careful with that word, right? Need? How you've been using it? I don't know. Maybe you should think about it a little bit. No, no, I need this. He needs to be this. He needs to be doing that. She needs to be doing this. She needs to be doing that. Whether it's a co-worker, family member, whatever the relationship is. How? Or is it even possible to die to ourselves? That's the question I've been ruminating over for some months now. I don't know that that is fully possible in this life, this side of glory. How is that possible? No, it just needs to be mortified. How often? Every day. Every single 
day. Psalm 65, verse 4, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Notice that, you choose. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple, and our jobs, and that house, if we ever get that house we want, and my kids, if they'll ever behave. Then I'll be happy. What a tiny universe we create for ourselves. You know the one we, we lord over? It's a small one. It's as, almost as small and shriveled up as our hearts. Psalm 107, we heard a reading from that this morning. Verse 9 stands out. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Awesome. So what's our problem? Here's our problem. Here's our problem. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. What are they? First of all, they've forsaken me. You didn't turn to him. That's why your heart's wrapped around other things. That's why you're miserable or you're grumpy or you're complaining or you'd be moaning. You, you turned away from the one that could satisfy you right in the middle of the diff, most difficult time of your life. And what else? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Lord, help us. Help us. And that's why some, some who even profess the name Christian are weary. They're tired. Or they're insomniacs. Because they've been chiseling out cisterns that don't hold any water. That's the point of the woman at the well, isn't it? You drink from that well, you're going you're gonna to thirst again. You're going to have to keep coming back, and you carry those yourself. The things you're looking to, remember, you car you're carrying those. That's why you're tired. That's why you're weary. God's solution, hearing this, that redemption has been accomplished. Redemption is accomplished as the invitation went out in Isaiah 55, 1 to 3. This is, and we're going to have to wrap things up shortly after reading this, but Isaiah 53, 1 to 3 is just too good to put on the table till next time. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Sounds like it's free what he's offering. Notice his metaphor. He's using wine and milk and food and so on so that he'll get our attention without price. So what kind of food is it that's without price? All I've ever seen is the price is going up. Verse 2, why do you spend your money and by the way, what's that referring to? You're striving after. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? <laughs> it's not the bread from above. It's not Him. And you labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. 
the commentator Edward Young on Isaiah, he said this, The prophet is an evangelist with a concern for the souls of men and a realization of their desperate condition without the blessings that the servant Jesus has obtained. The reference, verse 2, is general. You who spend your money for that which is not bread, addressed to all in the servitude of sin, nor are they addressed simply seeking to obtain the necessities of life. Rather, their entire endeavor is to procure the fullness of life that cannot be obtained by the efforts of sinful men. He says, listen diligently to me. One writer said, it's emphatic. It's like saying, hearken, exclamation point. Hearken, listen to me. The words unto me, where he says, come to me, are, are very prominent. Up till then, the people had been hearkening unto everyone but the Lord. To hearken to the Lord, however, means to shut out all other voices and to listen in obedience, end quote. And when we do, we can say with Jeremiah in 31, verse 25, for I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. Or when Jesus himself says it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I'm going to close with Revelation seven sixteen to 17. When that day comes, the text says, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Come to him. He stands with open arms, fully ready to satisfy you. Oh, turn away from what you wrapped your heart around in giving it the supremacy of your love, attention, and affection. And see that fall apart and make your life a misery. He's calling you now to find everything you could ever want, ask, or need in him. Salvation and satisfaction. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time we've had this morning to look at the bread of life. And we've only just begun, really. We look forward to those things that you'll show us from the rest of this powerful, powerful discourse. But for now, Lord, I pray, as you've spoken to the hearts of the people in this place, you've spoken to all of us. You've spent this week in my heart, even the week before, as we study this important passage of Scripture. May we believe it. May we consume it as it is the bread of life that we might have life, find life, and be satisfied in His life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.